Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. By the time you hear this, I think spring will have sprung, provided we don't all get nuked before then, and haven't really had to worry about that for several decades, at least not as much as we do today. But thanks to our very unstable geniuses there in Washington, D.C., that's back on our list of things to worry about. And I really wanted to suggest some ways of thinking about the way the empire runs. Now, I assume that most of my listeners, by the very nature of their having sought out this podcast, probably think about things in a little more sophisticated manner than Vladimir Putin is trying to rebuild the old Soviet empire, and he is, you know, this evil boogeyman. And I'm not saying he's not an evil boogeyman, but perhaps not quite so different from the boogeymen in Washington, D.C., as our own leaders would like us to think. But even among my social media followers who are very libertarian and the people that I know have open minds, I still hear you know, some opinions that I don't think are all that constructive in understanding how this works and how it might ever be changed. And I guess the first thing I'd like to say is that while Joe Biden has certainly been involved in Ukraine, and there's probably a lot of corruption connected with his son and his job at the Burisma Oil Company and his part in the coup d'etat in 2014 that overthrew the Yanukovych government, I don't think focusing most of the blame on Biden is all that helpful because When you take a step back and look at just the Ukraine issue for a moment, this all began during the Bush administration. Just as far as Ukraine goes, the whole anti-Russia full-court press is even older than that. But the first color revolution was in 2004 during the Bush administration. The second was during the Barack Obama administration in 2014. Donald Trump got elected to office saying that he wanted to have a better relationship with Russia, and I don't have any reason to doubt his sincerity on that, but nevertheless, actions speak louder than words, and he did send weapons to Ukraine for no 
positive reason as far as our relationship with Russia was concerned. Now, the pretense for sending these weapons was to help Ukraine defend itself against a possible invasion by Russia, which, of course, in retrospect now might look prescient, but I don't think that was ever on the table during the Trump administration. And what those weapons were really used for, of course, was to make war upon the seceding areas of Ukraine, the seceding republics in the eastern part of Ukraine known as the Donbass. So President Trump went right along. And of course, Joe Biden picked up where Trump left off. Well, you really have one policy in Ukraine over several presidents who all had different philosophies on the way they looked at the world, different politics. So you really have to conclude from that, the simplest explanation is that the presidents are not directing the State Department and the CIA, but it's really the other way around. And I don't mean in some cloak and dagger way where they're threatening to knock them off or knock off their families if they don't go along. Uh, Hey, maybe that is the way it is. You remember that video based on the comedy routine, and the comedian's name escapes me, but I'll try to find it for the show notes page, where he says this is the way it really works. And course, he shows President Clinton going into a smoky room with what this comedian said were all the capitalists who run the world. Of course, anti-capitalism is prevalent throughout the conservative and liberal movements, but they would basically show him the Zabruda film. And uh, any questions? <laughs> and the Bill Clinton character just says, no, what do you need me to do first? And they you know, go on to tell him we're going to bomb Baghdad. So, hey, you know, it may work that way. After 2020, Nothing would shock me. But what is probably the more likely explanation is that you have these lifelong government employees working in the State Department, coming out of academia with their degrees in foreign studies and foreign relations, and they work through one administration after another on long-term projects like getting Ukraine into the European Union or getting its allegiance away from Russia and towards the rest of Europe. And what operations actually come to fruition? Well, whatever they can get a president to sign off on. So your elected president, Barack Obama, mainly ran on almost nothing, hope and change, and Obamacare. And they're happy to let you do whatever you want domestically. But we're going to come in and, to the best of our ability, run foreign policy and run you running foreign policy. In other words, Mr. President, here are your two binary choices, sanctions or bombing. And if you don't do either, you're risking humanitarian disaster, blah, 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 blah. Now, some presidents are more sophisticated than others and more involved in the system than others when they get in. So to some extent, I think that some presidents get into office already on board with the program, like Bill Clinton, who was a Rhodes Scholar graduate, remember? And then others like Trump, I think, go in there sincerely thinking they're going to execute their agenda and don't know a heck of a lot about the way the foreign policy establishment works. And so they are in reaction mode with these lifelong employees coming in and throwing situations at them and just asking for a decision. And I really think that's the way it works. I'm open to suggestions otherwise. I've had lots of guests with different kinds of views. 
If you remember Tom Luongo, a great foreign policy and geopolitical analyst who marries together his geopolitical analysis with chart analysis for financial markets. So that's kind of his niche. And he sees this as a chessboard where there are clear strategies here. Daniel McAdams, who has long experience actually working in the U.S. government for Congressman Ron Paul, and also as an independent reporter over in Yugoslavia at the time that our interventions were going on there, doesn't think that it's anywhere near as planned out, that it's just more of a quest for more power. And that, that's the angle that like a John Mearsheimer might come from if you've read his book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, where it's just the nature of great powers to seek more power and to seek hegemony wherever they can find it. In some cases, just motivated by mistrust of all the other great powers. And he breaks it down in a lot more detail than that. If you haven't read his book, I do suggest that you read it to get that perspective. But in any case, this is the way the United States government has behaved. It's behaved very much the way that John Mearsheimer describes great powers behaving. And the United States has been the most dominant power, mainly fueled by being the freest economy for much of its history. And here's one of the things I don't like, even amongst my fellow travelers, so to speak, in terms of how we look at the world, seeing China as some kind of a threat just because their economy is growing. Now, I'm not saying that Chinese government isn't just like every other government and trying to grow its power, but they really haven't shown any interest in acquiring more territory. And I'm going to suggest that is a somewhat antiquated way for great powers to look at the world. And they're a little bit ahead of the United States government on this in that I don't think that they're looking to control significantly more territory, despite the islands that they're making in the South China Sea, which are really just strategic defensive positions in one case to fight pirates, at least that's their pretense, but probably more to defend themselves against possible United States aggression against them. No, China is looking to control economic affairs and technology. That's the way that they want to become a great power. And the reason that they are growing economically is because they're a lot freer than they used to be. And that doesn't mean that they're a laissez-faire market. And that doesn't mean that their government doesn't heavily intervene in their economic affairs, but it's a lot freer than it was under Mao. So over the last 30 years, China has become much freer and the United States has become much less free. So, of course, that's the engine of economic growth is freedom. And right now, we're just two powers that relatively more or less intervene in their own economies. And you can certainly make the case, and it's probably true, that the Chinese government intervenes more in some ways, but there are some ways that they are far freer economically than the United States. And whether President Xi represents a few steps back in that direction is a matter for another day. But in any case... If both countries were completely laissez-faire, then China would have the largest economy in the world. They're four times as big in land area and population. They are short on resources, but they're heavy on labor. So yeah, and this would not be something to worry about. If they were that free an economy, they'd have no reason to be aggressive towards 
other nation states, and they really haven't shown any military aggression towards other nation states. So when I hear that some of these interventions or even all the spending we do on military is hurting us because it's allowing China to move past us while we're wasting all our money and energy on war and being prepared for war, they're making deals. Yeah, I agree with that, but I'm not worried that China is growing economically. So I guess that was the point I wanted to make because I think that's a misplaced fear. And I also think it's a mistake to believe that somehow or other China is taking advantage of the United States by the United States having freer trade policies than they do. To the extent that China is mercantilist and does subsidize industries that are not competitive, that's making them weaker, not stronger. Okay, if they didn't do those things, then they're Industries that are competitive would grow even more. So all that economic intervention just hurts the country that does it. So I'm a little sidetracked from where I wanted to go, but I wanted to point that out because I'm hearing a lot of it in the context of the Ukraine crisis and this idea that, oh, this is just distracting us from the real enemy, China. I think that's misplaced. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. Work on the answer, then you quietly save the day. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just aren't logical. you crazy in the head. But getting back to the way that the Empire runs... I just wanted to also point out that let's apply my theory to the Trump administration, which admittedly was less frenetic and was somewhat of a relief after the Bush and Obama administrations, which were just flailing in every direction, two big wars, and then the whole Arab Spring of one regime change after another, combined with a not-so-covert color revolution in Ukraine and a hot war in Syria. This was just the empire out of control. And as I said, I do believe Trump was sincere. And you have to look at what he really promised before his campaign. When he made his first big foreign policy speech, it was encouraging to a point, but he really did not question the worldwide standing army which represents most of the cost of America's military spending, when they do an intervention, believe it or not, that's a pretty small percentage 
of the overall military spending. That's why it doesn't change when a war ends. When we got out of Afghanistan, the military spending went up several tens of billions of dollars. Why? Because most of that money is not spent on the actual hot war. And I think at one point, this was, I'd say maybe 10 years ago, I just remember this number off the top of my head, that while the United States was spending somewhere in the 600 billion on military spending overall, overseas contingency operations, which is what they euphemized the budget line name for the hot war, was about 160 billion. So it was a significant part, but compared to the 500 billion they were spending on other than the war they were fighting, it wasn't that much. And when you think about it, that's not the way the world worked for most of history. For most of history, a hot war represented a high watermark for military spending for any country. And then when the war ended, the country would demilitarize, would disarm itself, and military spending would drop. But that hasn't been the case for the United States since World War II. The worldwide standing army stayed in place, first supposedly deterred the Soviet Union. And then afterwards, when we were supposed to get this peace dividend, when we were supposed to see that spending cut dramatically, it never was. So Trump never really questioned any of that. What he did question was regime change hot wars. And that was one thing he promised not to get the United States into, and he pretty much kept that promise. We didn't get a new hot war like the one in Syria that Obama did in spite of Congress's direction, or of course the one in Iraq, but we did get several regime change attempts, including the one in Venezuela. Let's face it, that was a typical color revolution, just like the one that we ran in Ukraine and the ones we ran in Syria and Libya and Egypt and all the rest. And I wouldn't say that Trump so much was interested in doing that as much as that's an example of the State Department bringing him something, pitching that they had to overthrow this socialist leader and install Juan Guaido, who they tried to make the case was the legitimate president of Venezuela, which whatever you think of Maduro, that was certainly a ridiculous argument. But this is just the empire doing what it always does. And this was something they could get Trump to go along with because it wasn't a hot war. And installing somebody that they probably made sound good to him. And that's the way it works. And I think you saw the same thing in Iran, where Trump did not want to have a war with Iran, but he was persuadable that we could, quote unquote, put maximum pressure on them. And that was an attempt really at regime change, but it wasn't a hot war again. And he was very clear, I do not want a war with Iran. And I think he's somewhat naive to think that he could do some of the things he did without getting a hot war eventually. And you remember the one thing that I really did appreciate was Iran eventually shot down an unmanned drone. And I think that was a bucket of cold water to Trump that, no, you can't play games with another sovereign nation like this. They are going to retaliate. And then, of course, the neocons wanted to escalate this and get him to start bombing Iran. And there was one great moment in his presidency, probably the only time I've ever been proud of a president, is when he came out and said, you know what, they shot down an unmanned drone, and I'm not killing 150 Iranians over shooting down an unmanned drone. That's just disproportionate. 
So, of course, this was a problem of his own making and then going along with John Bolton, who was basically running him on this issue. But, uh, of course, he did the right thing there, and that de-escalated, and eventually Bolton got fired. And I hope Trump, in case he ever finds himself back in the evil office, learned something from that, that these people will run you. They will get away with whatever you will sign off on. They do not have your policies at heart. They're not acting in good faith. And they will do whatever they can get away with, whatever they can get the president to sign off on. That's the policy that will go forward. So while we didn't get into a new shooting war with Trump, there was certainly a lot of the same old, same old going on with the State Department, CIA, the so-called intelligence community running the empire the way they always run the empire. And of course, now that we have Joe Biden in the evil office, who was heavily involved in the second color revolution run in Ukraine, of course, he's picking up right where the Obama administration left off. And I don't think I need to make much of a case that Joe Biden is not the mastermind of anything. That's not to say that he wasn't very cognizant of the corruption opportunities that presented themselves after the revolution in Ukraine. And perhaps those kinds of opportunities are part of the motivation for some of these foreign policy operations. But Joe Biden mainly just goes along with the State Department and the intelligence community. So that's one way to think about the difference between Biden and Trump. Not so much that either one of them have some grand plan for the world, but Biden is compliant. He's been for sale since his first election. I mean, he was always a dimwit, So we know that he never really brought much to the table, even politically, other than he was always up for sale and would go to the highest bidder and they've kept him in office. So the unions and other powerful interests own Joe Biden. That's who he works for. And of course, they're all tied into the way the empire runs. Trump, on the other hand, I really do believe was an outsider in that He was an unknown. He wouldn't necessarily go along with everything that the empire wanted to do. But again, he buys a lot of it. So it was just that little bit. And he said the unspeakable words, which were that we should have a better relationship with Russia. And that's where I think that, you know, you have to look back all the way to the end of the USSR. Remember, the modern Washington administrative state is really a construction of the New Deal and World War II and the Cold War. So this program against Russia is coming up on 80 years old. Now, again, after its 46th year, we were supposed to see a change in the policy, but there never really was a change in the policy. There were a few years there where H.W. Bush And Bill Clinton were making plans for how the United States could take advantage of Russia economically. But even during the Clinton administration, the expansion of NATO had already begun, which continued during the Bush administrations and everyone afterwards. So what are the implications of all this? And first of all, you have to really pay attention to what these politicians are saying when they run for office. They pretty much give you what they run on, but a lot of times they leave themselves wiggle room between what you think you're getting and what you're really going to get. And again, I really do consider Donald Trump to have been completely sincere 
And he pretty much gave what he promised in his foreign policy speech, which I'll link to on the show notes page, before he got elected, which was marginally better, but certainly not peace, commerce, honest friendship with all nations and entangling alliances with none. For one thing, we need pressure on politicians to clean house at the State Department. I mean, that's something that would really make a difference, a lot more than electing a different president or electing a president who will fire everybody down to the janitor at the State Department, clean out the CIA as well, and read the riot act to everybody who's left that we're out of the regime change business in the CIA. Your job is to spy and get me information. Anybody that goes rogue is going to get fried. I mean, this is the kind of thing that would make a difference. A lot of pretty words will not. So if you don't see somebody that's running on something like that, you might as well just get ready for more of the same. Victoria Nuland, for example, was a key figure in the Iraq war. She's still around. Nobody gets punished. See John Bolton. I keep coming back to this. Because it did all start with the New Deal, the administrative state, and the foreign policy end of it really after World War II, that it's got to be taken apart. You can elect all the Donald Trumps or Ron DeSantis as you want, who, by the way, makes a lot of noises like a neocon when he is asked to comment on foreign policy. I know he's beloved in Florida, and he's doing a relatively great job, as is Christy Nome in South Dakota, whose approach to coronavirus was even more libertarian than DeSantis's. But get him up there and ask him about foreign policy, and here come the neocon slogans. Biden is leading from behind, et cetera, et cetera. So you got to watch what these people say. And, you know, it's a heavy lift. But if you're going to achieve anything politically, it's got to be somebody who's going to go in there and take not a scalpel, a sledgehammer to the administrative state, the New Deal regulatory system on the economic side, and the State Department CIA intelligence community complex and Pentagon, of course on the foreign policy side. And as far as elected members of Congress, I would just point out how many so-called America First congressmen, like Josh Hawley, are now suddenly on board with this operation in Ukraine. All of a sudden, they're all neocons again. Very few pushing back. Kudos to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Whatever you think of her on other issues, she stood up and made a speech that sounded very much like our friend Ron Paul, albeit with some of the China rhetoric that I'm not so fond of. But we got a lot of work to do. And really, you know where I come from on this issue. I put the blame on the people, ultimately. Lindsey Graham is still around because he keeps getting reelected. John McCain got reelected to the day he died. It's no secret what these people are about. They do have to stand for election, and to the extent that Congress even plays a part in the foreign policy anymore, you've got to elect people that are going to do something about this. They can pass resolutions that order the State Department and the CIA down. They can pass resolutions that defund these agencies. It's all possible, but people are going to have to want to elect people that run on those things. And of course, I use Ron Paul as an example. He got a lot of light on him and a lot of media coverage for somebody who ultimately only got 2 million votes, and he only got 2 million votes. 
So that's why we have the government that we do. I don't like this idea that it's impossible and there's dark forces behind the scenes that are in control of everything. No, you all out there, maybe not the people listening to my podcast, but most people in America elect this government and allow the unelected part of it to continue. So I'm going to talk a lot more about these kinds of issues on some podcasts coming up, but I'll see you all on Wednesday. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.